You're listening to Project Palladium. This is a podcast brought to you by high school students who are interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the world around them. And today, I'm Jack Muscatello. I'm Luke Dibano. So, I was listening to Cuomo's conference uh, yesterday, which has been daily pretty much for the last couple of weeks now, and he was talking about much of the same thing. You know, stay home as much as you can, and now wear a mask in public if you can't social distance, which has been this new addition to the social distancing policy. But he said something that I thought was interesting. I don't think we ever get back to normal. I think this is one of the new normals now in public health, like we go through the environment, like we've gone through the economy. It's a new normal. As he put it, the new normal. And I started to think, what will be normal after this is over? Well, can there even be a new normal? Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, society's like, like it's had such a set structure for the past few decades. So will we even be able to like deviate from that set like structure that we've created? Yeah. For example, what Dr. Fauci from the CDC was saying about shaking hands. When you gradually come back, you don't jump into it with both feet. You say, you know, what are the things that you could still do and still approach normal? One of them is absolute compulsive hand-washing. The other one is you don't ever shake anybody's hands. (laughs) That's clear. Will that that stick? I don't know. I know for for me, I'm always prone to shake someone's hand when I meet them for the first time, especially if it's an adult. What will be that normal that we can change it to be? Because clearly a virus arrived somehow based on how we were doing it before. So if we return to that, that normalcy from where how we knew it to be, it will just be the same cycle over and 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 over. Correct. We'd be like spiraling into something we can't crawl out of. Yeah, we'll have to wake up and change how we how we go about daily life, how we go about our jobs, how we go about carrying ourselves in public or whatever that may be. But how we go about doing that, we'll have to change in order to get out of that cycle. What is normal? You know, not only is, like you were saying, like what is normal before, but what is normal actually defined as? So I, lo- I looked it up. Basically, the, the way the dictionary describes it is standard or regular in terms of a pattern and not deviating from any norm or principle or rule. Oh, yeah, like deviating from any normal rule. Like we want to stick to what we know. We don't want to venture like to the unknown. We don't want to change anything. We don't have to. Right. This virus kind of takes everything that we've known to be normal and it just deviates from it entirely. That's true. Like nobody wants to stay like in their homes all day. Nobody wants to have their plans canceled. Our whole routine is just gonna be flipped on its head. Yeah. You know, this whole stay at home order has just it's been a unique challenge to that because we're so used to getting up early, especially in our case, or you're still in school. We still have to go um every day in the morning. You know, I would wake up at five forty five to make my bus at six thirty. And now it, I'm waking up at 8.30 and reheating pizza, you know, and I, I would never do that before. So it's just, I, I like how you put it, like completely flipping on its head. Like it's so, it's so different now. And eventually we will go back to maybe a routine, but I'm just curious what that routine will be. That routine could be the new normal we're talking about, or we could possibly turn back to what we know. We don't know. Exactly. We don't know. Um, as far as for for my personal life, we've been kind of okay during all this. I know many people have lost their jobs and, and um, 
I know many families are struggling with that financially and how the economy's been doing and just the world's been turned upside down. But I'm just curious how, how you guys have been doing. Oh, they're pretty good, you know, hanging in there. Kind of just been like my dad's been at work still and my mom's working from home. So what does your dad do? My dad's a corrections officer at the Nassau County Correctional Center. Can you tell us a bit more about him? Yeah, he's been working there for the last 10 years. As a correction officer, um, what we do is we first off make sure that the inmates are properly dressed. Um, they always have to wear orange, at least a bottom or a top at all times. Um, we control their movements um, as of where they go. Uh, so prior to the corona, he's gotten used to many, many malevolent uh, uh, and loathsome characters in there who have been deemed by society to be too dangerous for the common good. Though the fear of getting hurt is not always on his mind, two years ago, while walking down the empty corridor, filled with the agonizing words of every inmate's miserable story, which bounced off the cold concrete walls, he noticed an inmate who had fallen unconscious. He opened the cold steel door to the cell and rushed in to help. While attempting to lift the inmate off of the ground, my dad tore several ligaments in his elbow. The overwhelming, musky aroma of the cell still triggers the memory of this moment, as the smells have seldom changed since. And that's and that's even after they clean it. They just you know you have guys in there that do not shower for more than once a month. And that's just that's just the way they are. That's a good description. I feel like I've just been in there with him. Is that the only time he was hurt in the job? Well, outside of the incident, he hasn't gotten hurt from any inmate confrontation, thankfully. But the possibility is still there. Most of the fights that happen are inmate on inmate. A lot of it is gang-related, high-level crime figures or, or gang bangers, and they'll what's called push up on the new guy, trying to take his stuff. Uh, it's just jail stuff. We have had inmates attack officers. Many of the inmates within the facility will eventually be released from their sentences and return to normal life on the streets. If my dad did anything, uh, if I'm a real jerk to them and uh, uh, and I go over and above what I'm supposed to do, um, I'm going to see these guys on the street one day. And, you know, you don't want to have a situation that you're with your family and all of a sudden an inmate goes, hey, remember, you did the wrong thing by me, and, you know, and, you know, bad things could happen. Not only would this put him in danger, but also my mom, my sisters, and myself. So. The reality of this really adds pressure to my dad's responsibilities, even though he's personally not afraid. Is this the first time your dad's told you about his fears? Oh, uh, I think so. He's always been pretty reserved about it, about his feelings, and it certainly makes me want to get to know him a little bit more in that sense. Anyway. The virus has changed the daily operations within the facility, especially relating to my dad. They haven't been able to determine when exactly the virus arrived inside, but once they found positive cases within the facility, a separate dorm building was repurposed as a quarantine area, which houses all of the infected inmates. Anytime someone displays symptoms, they are tested, and if they are positive, they are quickly moved out of their cell and into the quarantine dorm. The facility quickly increases protection protocols for the officers. My dad received an N95 mask to wear at all times, along with rubber gloves for any potential direct contact with the inmates. The facility is also cleaned twice daily. Since the COVID-19 virus started, Sheriff James Zaranda, he put together uh, 
a four inmate crew uh, along with two officers and they go around and sanitize the facility twice a day. It's definitely cleaner than it's ever been. And my dad and his co-workers wipe down their workstation, which includes the control room, so much so. And there was a note from maintenance for us not to spray the sanitizer on the switchboards because we're shorting out the, <laughs> we're shorting out p certain parts of it. This angered their superiors a little bit. My dad was tested about two weeks ago now. This was recorded at the beginning of April, and thankfully it came back negative. But other officers have gotten it, which has created a little bit of an issue for available manpower. They're all doing well, none of them are on a ventilator or anything serious, but it has created an added need to be cautious for everyone in there, which includes the inmates. The new protocols have limited the inmates in the amount of time they're allowed outside of their cell blocks, which has naturally decreased the fighting between them. Some of them are not a fan of this. A few will ask why do officers get to go home during all of this while they're stuck inside overnight, but they gave up their freedoms when committing a crime. But most of them understand. They realize it's for their safety and not an act of further punishment. So my dad is no longer dealing with as many conflicts between the inmates. You do get less fighting because there's only 10 inmates out uh, opposed to say 40 or 50. So you do have less controversy between them. And has almost felt relieved as a result. It seems as if your dad's job is almost easier now, in a way. For one, the inmates are out in a common area for less time, as you said, and cannot fight amongst themselves as often. And a new emphasis has been placed on the condition of the facility, which benefits not only the inmates, but your dad as well. I guess so. I never really thought about it in that way. But that is right. Outside the virus, there is less for my dad to worry about. Right. And it's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic to bring about these changes. But hopefully, if these protocols are adapted into a standard for the facility, then the new normal for your dad is mostly positive. Yeah, it's a rare example of a benefit from this virus. Just like the people in India can see the Himalayas for the first time in decades, due to the lower air pollution during quarantine. Right. And hopefully there will be other times such as that where positive effects occur from this virus, where a possible new normal is better than what we had before. We look to broaden our scope for this story a little bit and focus more on the impact of this virus on an international scale. We are luckily able to connect with a young woman in Spain who is a cousin of one of our field producers, Max Leston. He'll be joining us for this upcoming segment in order to retell her story. Spain currently has a total of more than 220,000 cases and counting, which is only second to the United States and well ahead of the rest of the European Union. The development of the pandemic within the country is about two weeks ahead of the U.S which makes for an interesting perspective on the virus's ever-changing and ever-growing global presence. Carlota is a nurse in Barcelona, Spain. She works in one of the largest hospitals in the region, which serves as an example for proper healthcare for the entire country. She works specifically in the ER wing of the hospital, which traditionally welcomed 20 to 30 people each day. Now, nearly a thousand new patients are rushing in daily, and the facility has quickly begun to feel the pressure. 
Within the medical field, it was reported that upwards of 30% of the personnel have contracted the virus. Equipment, primarily ventilators, are in critical supply. Carlotta's hospital luckily received a shipment of new ventilators within the previous year, which broadened the capacity for patients. The facility supervisors had decided to keep the old ones as inventory, as a backup option. These backups were now being rolled out for daily use and likely saved hundreds of lives. Carlotta's roommate, who is also a nurse, works in a different hospital nearby. Her facility was not as fortunate. The number of available ventilators fell far below any reasonable number, which created a difficult moral situation. Sí que tuvo casos de de tener que dejar morir a gente porque no había suficientes respiradores. Doctors were forced to decide which patients had the best possible chance for survival, which in turn determined who received the respirator. More people began to lose their lives, grandparents, uncles, aunts, and neighbors, and even friends. But little could be done to help within the hospital. Wow, I can't even imagine what that must be like. What was the hospital's response to that drastic spike? Yeah, first the hospital was split into different sections or zones in order to compensate for the steady influx of passengers. Each zone swelled with patients each day, and doctors and nurses worked tirelessly amid the chaos. She had seen several nurses break down from the constant stress. Carlota managed to keep her composure, and she never questioned her job. Que hubo una situación de un paciente muy joven y muy grave que fue como muy estresante, pero fue ese momento puntual y ya está. O sea, But there was one moment when caring for a particularly young patient. When the severity of the situation was made abundantly clear to her. Her hospital was not prepared to handle something like this, but they were going to change that quickly. Carlota and the other nurses worked in teams of two. The system was devised in order to ensure the safest possible removal of the safety equipment, which consisted of a light plastic gown, an N95 mask, goggles, and thin latex gloves. This was only one of the many adaptations made within the hospital. She used to work seven hours a day, that was soon swapped out for 12-hour shifts, which allowed for a larger count of nurses within the facility. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, imagine actually being there. Do they have any time to rest or eat during the day at all? Well, any time devoted to breaks during the day was canceled. Breakfast at one point, a morning commodity within the hospital, was rarely eaten prior to noon. Lunch was postponed to 5 p.m., and dinner became an afterthought. Those measures were implemented overnight. And they had enough of all the protective equipment that they needed. Carlota's supervisor was an older woman and was quite good at providing these new ideas for changes within the hospital. Her goal was simply to make the facility as comforting as possible for the patients and staff. Pressure mounted as a result of this request, but never from the patients. Fear and confusion was common, but many of the patients quickly trusted Carlota and the other nurses. If anything, the pressure derived from the need to conserve equipment. Morale was high, but test kits, ventilators, and masks were dangerously low in number. Carlota was soon made aware that pneumonia tests would first be used on every incoming patient. If that test came back negative, a COVID test was out of the question. Were the medical staff tested at all during all this, given that they were constantly exposed? Securing a test for the doctors and nurses was not really a priority. When Carlota decided to begin the process of getting tested, the first step was to simply fill out a form, but it was quickly made known to her that the only real candidates for the test were patients who showed any of the confirmed symptoms. Carlota initially only had a runny nose. So did she ever get tested? Well, 
A few days after that, she started to display some of the more known symptoms. First, she lost her sense of taste, and then her sense of smell. She quickly felt weak and tired, and her muscles began to ache. That was just a span of four days. She talked to her supervisor, and a test was ordered. With those symptoms, as a nurse, did she think it was COVID, or did she suspect it to be something else? Actually, yeah. Another nurse was tested before her, and she showed the same symptoms. Her result was positive, so she felt it would be the same in her situation. How did she feel while she waited for the results of the test? The waiting game wasn't as scary because Carlotta kind of knew she had the virus, and it was only a matter of time before her intuition was confirmed. Her decision to fill out the form was not because of any fear for her own safety, but because of the safety of her co-workers. Four more days lined between the tests and the results. During this time, she continued to work. She tried her best to distance herself from her co-workers and her friends, but the job made these attempts almost impossible. She felt guilty because of this. O sea, cuando iba a trabajar me sentía culpable de ir por el contagio de mis compañeros. Sí. Pero, pero sí, o sea, pensaba solo en eso, en no querer contagiarlos. She didn't want to be the cause of another nurse's illness. She wanted to help people. It was her initial calling to become a nurse, but the reality of this vocation quickly set in. Carlota was now working on the front lines against the virus and there was little she could do to protect herself and the others around her. Wow. Wow. She wasn't really surprised when the test came back positive. The hospital said she should stay home and begin to self-isolate. The initial advised time period was two weeks. Carlota lives in a small apartment in Barcelona. Her apartment has a common space in the center, which has the kitchen and the bathroom inside. She shares the apartment with her roommate, Carlota began isolating the evening after she got the results. They arrived through a simple WhatsApp message. For the two-week period, she only left her room to use the bathroom. Her roommate delivered her meals to the door and made sure to step away before Carlota retrieved them. The rest of the time was spent in her room and she started to feel quite physically and mentally cramped. Pero sí que es verdad que estas dos semanas mentalmente sí que fue duro porque estás sola en una habitación Tienes muy poco, tienes mucho tiempo y poco espacio. Y la sí. cabeza le da mil vueltas, piensas en todo y es bastante agobiante. Shortly after the pandemic began, her roommate was also moved from the ER to an intensive care unit. She was also given a test, but hers came back negative. That test was two weeks ago, and she's been working nearly every day since. For Carlota, she spent a large portion of the two weeks reflecting. which was the first time since March she had really gotten a moment to do so. Seth Reisner is an American-born teacher working in Tokyo. Um, I'm a math teacher at a middle school, uh, an international school here in Tokyo called Tokyo International School, which is part of a foreign exchange program he joined several years ago for teachers enjoying traveling and teaching around the world. He previously taught at a school in Vietnam, working with, uh, you know, uh, charity organizations like um, the Salvation Army or with state parks, building trails like we did out in Oregon. So I was kind of traveling all over the place, never in one spot for more than one or two months at a time. Um, and I kind of liked that, like how it kept things fresh. It was always like, you know, getting to experience like the local place, not as a tourist, but like, even though I was only there for one or two months, I still got to like, 
really experience what it was like to sort of live in a place. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And during that time, I happened to meet somebody at a party who told me about the idea of international teaching, which I didn't know was a thing. And it's now his fifth year in the program. Seth has recently assigned a new job at a school in Uganda, but the arrival of the virus quickly changed that. So the initial plan was that we would finish up the school year here. The school year ends in June. We would be leaving here in the almost like the middle end of June, June 23rd, I think was the date. Um, and going home, spending some time in California with my wife's family and friends, spending some time in New York with my family and friends for the summer. And then we were supposed to fly down to Uganda, um, where our next school is located um, uh, at the beginning of August. Um, but currently Uganda is in a state of lockdown. As of our interview with Seth, which is back in April, the outbreak in Japan was several weeks behind that of the United States. The number of new cases per day was only beginning to rise, and as with our government, there was no pre-existing plan in place for handling the onslaught of a global pandemic. In order to suppress widespread panic and fear, the official numbers released by the Japanese government were fairly low. From a lot of people's perspectives, um, including my own, it kind of seemed like uh, the numbers were being kept artificially low, especially when compared to the rest of the world. This was likely because of the then-planned Olympics in Tokyo, which was a monstrous investment on behalf of the city and the country as a whole. Construction had been finalized, and travel plans were already in place for the majority of athletes. The Olympic Games would have brought about a mammoth boost to the already growing economy. But suppression could not last forever, and the government soon announced the postponement of the Games until next year. They were very hesitant to um, put in place the state of emergency that they just announced about a week or so ago. Within a few days of this announcement, the number of official cases rose dramatically, and the Japanese government quickly felt the effects of COVID-19. As it was created after the surrender of the island nation to the Allies at the end of World War II, the democratic government in Japan is fairly weak. The U.S. oversaw the creation of the new national constitution, which bears a close resemblance to ours. Um, and the state of emergency here, due to the way the constitution is set up here, they actually, the government doesn't have that much power to actually force people to stay home or to force people to close. Um, like okay. they can close certain things like, you know, I, I think they have enough power to close like schools and things like that. Um, but a lot of, you know, bigger companies, like there's still people going to work. Because of this, it was difficult for unified state of emergency to be called by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Several weeks went by before a decision was made, even though local governments began to handle the effects of the pandemic as they saw fit. Seth, as an outside observer of the government, believes that the low-tech nature of legal traditions cultivated in this slow response. It is still customary for a red seal of approval to appear on all official documents in many areas. In Japan, it's called the Inkan, um, and they okay. have to sign their, you know, sign all documents using that. Um, and that's not something that they're prepared to use digitally quite yet. Which differs greatly from the abundance of online discourse seen elsewhere in the world. A shutdown of the majority of incoming travel was declared in early April, which included flights from the United States. For anyone comfortable inside their own homes, the shutdown is a huge step towards flattening the curve. For Seth, though, it's somewhat of a trap. Though U.S. citizens are allowed to fly home, as per the details of the Trump administration's travel ban, Seth would not be able to return to Japan for any reason to include his work. So, for the time being, he's been enjoying the relatively clean atmosphere in Tokyo, all things considered. Seth is concerned mostly about his parents. It's definitely stress-inducing to be far away from family and to know that you can't even, like, if something were to happen, I can't just, like, fly back to New York because 
what if I were to be, you know, asymptomatic and like my other parent is fine and then I was to go there and, you know, infect one of them or something, I would feel horrible about that. So as they are for him. His mom is naturally very cautious. I mean, my, my, my mother, she always worries about it like more than she should anyway. And so of course, like I mean, I've gotten messages from her, you know, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Be careful with this, be careful. you know? So of course, like there, you, you get all of that stuff. I'm sure any mother would, but especially like my mother. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely been plenty of messages like that, you know, uh, checking in to make sure we're being careful and safe and smart. He is. We go to the supermarket or whatever, and we started, you know, wearing a mask and everything as well, which, I mean, again, most people were doing from the beginning here anyway, but um, it's part of the, you know, a big part of the culture anyway, but um, we, we still felt uncomfortable, like, you know, people were riding trains and taking buses and stuff. We, we stopped doing that a, a little while back, like, um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely a mix. I think certain people are taking it seriously and staying home and certain people aren't like it would be anywhere mm -hmm. else. Well before the pandemic originated in China, Japan was of a few countries with a cultural norm surrounding masks. It was routine to see citizens outside wearing them, either medical or cloth. It's often assumed that the reason behind this is a high amount of pollution in the air, as observed in many cities in China. But it's actually due to a much more humane purpose. Whereas now it is necessary to wear a mask for one's own safety from the virus. In Japan, it's simply been common courtesy. People across the country wear masks when they're sick, often with the common cold, in order to prevent others from catching their pathogens. Those with allergies also wear masks on a daily basis, and it's been proven as a pretty effective method for combating the effects of allergic sinusitis due to pollen inhalation. Basically, masks were never questionable in Japan. And the newfound need for masks to slow the spread of COVID-19, for those in Japan, is simply just a walk in the park. Seth's school in Tokyo remained open for a few weeks prior to our interview which was concerning, especially given the grim news from the rest of the world. Some people in Japan, as in the US, decided not to take the virus as seriously and continued to live as normal. Abe eventually announced that schools were to be closed for an indefinite period of time, which was a result of mounting pressure from the press. With schools closed, it's been all on the teachers to simulate the classroom environment on a 12-inch screen. Digital learning has taken the form of virtual classes in which the teacher works through a lesson for their audience of students who are listening from kitchen tables, desks, and even their own beds. Seth is apprehensive of this new system, especially given his planned departure from the school at the end of this year. He's making the best of it though, and his co-workers have been very helpful in crafting different lesson plans and assignments on a week-to-week -week basis. The school itself is an international school, which refers to the student body. Nearly 60 nationalities are represented within the school, and this presents a challenge to any teacher under normal circumstances. Seth has struggled to connect to his students, and since the shutdown, he hasn't seen any of them in weeks. So for instance, I normally see my students in every class once every day in a normal okay. school day. Um, mm -hmm. And so since we came back from the break, I'm now only preparing about two days worth of work um, for the students. So it's, you know, a little bit, instead of 50%, it's, you know, I'm, see, I'm seeing, I'm quote unquote, seeing them less than that. Right. Um, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I, it's been better because the students were really overwhelmed and the teachers were really overwhelmed. And so we, we're, we're still teaching. Right. Most of us are still teaching like largely the same things we would be teaching just in a different way, but, but not everybody can like, so for instance, like normally in the spring we have a, 
concert and musical with our music and drama departments um, mm -hmm. that had to be canceled that they were preparing for, but unfortunately, and they were still actually preparing for it remotely um, up until the spring break. But then when things got extended, they had to finally throw in the towel. Um, but mm -hmm. yes, yeah, so, I mean, things like that, they have to change their plans in terms of the things that they're doing with kids that are obviously not the same things they could be doing when they're all in person, able to like practice, practice with, as an orchestra together or practice uh, for different drama performances together and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, so a lot of a lot of teachers have had to change their practices. Our PE teacher has had to change their practice, obviously, because they're they can't really tell kids to go out for a run because they're not. Right. You know, we don't want to promote promote that like that they're going outside to do things like that. So the digital learning environment has also put up a barrier for the majority of teachers as teaching has taken the form of giving out assignments and simply waiting to grade them. It's natural for kids to struggle to pay attention when actually in school, but now, when laying on their bed with a computer, watching their teacher discuss the different grammatical tenses of English, it's an entirely new level of boredom. Digital learning takes out the fun elements of the school day, from lunch period to recess to gym class. Kids haven't been as active during the entire quarantine, which is a common problem throughout the world. Seth has done his best to make it work, for the time being, but it's been a newfound source of stress for him. As for the rest of Japan, many schools do not have as widespread of access to computers or tablets, which makes it impossible for some students to continue learning. It is a truly unprecedented time for many of the most routine tasks, but the temporary system for schools is mostly overlooked. A common concern for teachers is on the availability of student resources, as it is hard to create a blanket system for virtual learning if many students don't even have access to an internet connection. And also, there's worry that some kids don't even have access to enough food each day, as many adults are now out of work and haven't been paid in weeks. For Seth, this whole situation has become routine for him. Talking to a computer screen is no longer questionable, as it was earlier, and the heavy amount of work for the teachers and the students has become pretty normal. Though it's hard to support a digital learning environment, this new normal for teachers and students will likely continue for some time. In the US, numerous states have begun to initiate phase one of their reopening plans. And in Japan, Abe announced earlier this week that the country would be formally ending its declared state of emergency. Though there are bright spots of hope for a return to normal, it is safe to say that this new educational normal in particular will continue for the next several months. After hearing from Seth and his experience over the past few weeks, it's hard not to think about the similarities with our own distance learning system here in the States. There's an international sense of frustration with the virtual environment among students and teachers. For me, as a student, it's much harder to actively learn material now, especially in math and science. The physical presence of a teacher in the classroom is so helpful for discussions about the lesson, as well as for answering any immediate questions that arise after learning new material. Though schools and teachers are trying their absolute best with what they have, the system cannot be sustained for an indefinite period of time. With virtual classes, natural discourse between students and teachers is removed almost entirely, barring the rarely productive conversations held over Zoom. This environment does not lend itself well to learning or teaching, and this issue is no different nearly 7,000 miles away. When Wuhan first entered a lockdown after the outbreak of the virus, a call was made for medical volunteers across the country. Ho Jing, a lab technician in a hospital in the city of Haohe, 
which is almost 900 miles away, said yes. Before the pandemic, she specialized in research involving different types of tumors, as well as possible treatment options for patients. When the virus first became a widespread threat, she joined the multitude of doctors and nurses in a nationwide effort to contain it. This was before most of the world even batted an eye. Her hospital quickly established a new department, which centered on checkups for any flu-like symptoms or signs of fever among patients. Tests for the virus would be administered among new arrivals as the doctors saw fit. But these tests were not nearly as streamlined as those that are available now. In order to determine if a patient was infected, samples were transported to an off-site hub to be checked. The results would then be provided to a doctor, and ultimately the patient, several days later. The facility did not accept confirmed patients for treatment, as it was quickly designated by the government as a transition unit. With this status, it served as a large-scale testing center, as patients with the virus were transferred to other designated hospitals in the region for a more extended stay. As the facility quickly flooded with paranoia, Hojing encountered several patients who were quickly confirmed to have the virus. If she was not busy preparing a test kit or packaging up a sample for transport, she was traversing through the busy hallways to the front desk in search of a new patient. Her prior training as a lab technician put her in a unique position within the hospital. Though every doctor and nurse was involved with testing to some extent, Hojing was in direct contact with blood, patient's blood. At first, it was not any different than normal. Blood was a common sight for her, either in thin plastic tubes or clear IBC bags. But when it was announced that the virus was airborne, and therefore abundant in the blood of patients, her relationship with the fluid quickly grew tense. As a line of defense, PPE became much more commonplace. Every member of the medical team within the hospital received their own N95 mask, as well as thicker plastic gloves and heavy glasses. On top of this, training was implemented across the board, and not just once, but three separate times for every nurse, technician, and doctor. Even though she seldom had direct contact with the patients themselves, outside of their blood, she was held to the same standard. It was all hands on deck. Ho Jing was nervous. This variation of the COVID-19 virus was an entirely new threat, and there was no available documentation, no known medication, and no pre-existing protocols. The mortality rate rose by the day, and patients flooded the entrance to the hospital. She said it felt like crossing a deep, murky river in the middle of the night. Her goal was to get to the other side, but how deep was the river? And how far away was the other side? How far would she and the world have to tread before they reached safety? There were no answers other than the fact that the virus was contagious and spreading. The entire country quickly felt the effects of this spread. The national media consistently released information about the rising metrics. The city of Hauhad quickly shut down alongside the rest of the country. For the most part, the initial response was similar to here in the States. No one left their homes, people lived in the fear, and the news cycle repeated the worst of information. On her way to work each day, the streets were deserted. She said it felt like the middle of the night, except the sun was out. 
As a whole, she noticed a certain sensitivity among people, as many were very strict about their level of outside exposure. The government painted a clear picture of the virus and its effects, and the decisions to shut down were not a suggestion. In a way, it seemed that the government was more responsible for the outbreak, and matched this responsibility with concise orders. Throughout the lockdown process, the government instituted a runoff chain of command, from the highest leading members of the party, all the way down to the average worker. Smaller district and county governments couldn't decide individually about the lockdown. It was a consistent line of information from the top to the bottom. However, the party did rely on these smaller governments to carry out these orders and implement the new policies for the average citizen. Posters were printed in bulk and placed around telephone poles, on the sides of buildings, within bus stations, and even on the different individual floors in apartment buildings. If someone was unaware of the new requirements, they chose to be. When the call was made for medical volunteers, Ho Jing was willing to participate. But due to her status as a technician, she wasn't chosen. She knew several of the nurses in her hospital who were chosen, and the preparation was brief. They were told to travel to Wuhan to work in newly constructed hospital centers, which were temporary structures built to ease the overwhelming surge of patients. One of the volunteers, a younger nurse, decided to cut her hair. Not just a trim, but a full buzz cut. She felt it was easier to wear the provided mask and glasses without any of her hair getting in the way. Several other nurses followed suit, and they all quickly left for Wuhan. The entire medical staff within Ho Jing's hospital volunteered, even the younger nurses and physicians. The reason for this immense response, at least to Ho Jing, was the government's prominent promotion of the medical task at hand. It was a call for the inherent desire found within all medical professionals, which is to serve and help those in need. There was also a reminder of the end goal. If the virus was eradicated quickly, children would be able to go back to school, businesses would open up, and the country would be back on its feet. On top of this, an incentive for future promotions for nurses and physicians was mentioned, which added yet another layer to this promotion. The younger members were especially driven by this. Volunteers were sent in six different waves in order to replenish the workforce already present in Wuhan, which had grown tired from the grueling work. Volunteers themselves were picked based on their skill sets so that certain jobs could be fulfilled. The situation eased with time, and the country soon began reopening. The city of Haohat was not hit as hard as Wuhan and other urban areas, and upon the first stage of reopening, the spread of the virus crawled to a halt. Most of the new cases were from foreigners, as airlines quickly restarted their operations and flights poured into the empty airports. The policy for new arrivals in China was a quarantine period of 14 days, which fit the standard assumption for the amount of time that the virus is present within someone's body. However, the virus is smart. It has gotten used to the human body, and subsequent mutations have made it harder for tests to detect. The test itself consists simply of a sample taken from a person's navel cavity or the back of their throat. The physician or technician then waits for the sample to showcase a growth of the virus. If this growth is not present, then the result is negative. But it's not that simple. The virus itself does not grow at a uniform rate, and due to this, it is hard to distinguish its possible effects from one person to another. One person who has the virus might feel nothing at all, while another might suffer from the worst flu-like symptoms imaginable. For the foreigners in China, they are given a test at the end of their quarantine period. If the result is negative, then they are allowed into the country. However, their asymptomatic response may cause for the virus to spread to other people, who may not be so lucky.
，比方说这一个小区给安排了十个人，这十个人就是把要把这一小区所有。In an effort to maximize the effectiveness of the lockdown, the Chinese government put different resources in place to assist people in need. Resource officers were assigned to specific families with several known cases of the virus. They call daily to check in and make sure their conditions aren't getting worse. If the family needs anything from the outside world, they place an order for them and deliver it to their door. According to Ho Jing, the effort put in by the government has been extraordinary. Nevertheless, Ho Jing feels that China is roughly 80% back to normal. Recreational facilities are still closed, along with all primary schools, but the majority of businesses have opened up. High school students did return to school recently, but the Gaokao, a college entrance exam akin to the SAT, was canceled for the year. As it is in the U.S., this is a blessing and a curse for students. On one hand, one of the hardest exams for high schoolers in China is now not available, but this does make it more difficult for a student to prove their worth to a college, and with extracurriculars postponed indefinitely, it's very hard for a student to stand out from the crowd. Ho Jing wants to return to normal alongside everyone else. She misses going to the theater and walking with her family in the park near their house. The extended time with her family is welcomed, as it's been an entirely new experience having everyone home each day. She's decided not to eat out for quite some time, and that includes takeout. Restaurants are open at the moment, but there's often only one person allowed at each table. With additional time on her hands. Ojing feels more organized than ever. She's been sleeping better and having more open conversations with her family. She's also noticed less garbage outside in the streets and an overall renewed sense of cleanliness, which, as a medical professional, is quite rewarding. She's trying to exercise during her time at home and participate in a popular square dance, which is well known throughout the country. In the beginning, the hospitals were overrun, medical workers were tired and overworked, and panic was rampant. But as lockdown progressed. The crowds of patients lessened, and the country began to ease back to normal. They're not quite there yet, as Ho Jing puts it. They're close. And she's optimistic. As we enter the summer months, the virus is still very much here. Most of the world is still on some sort of lockdown, even as many states and even whole countries are beginning to reopen. The overall trajectory of the virus has been in the hands of different governments, and the level of cooperation between them and their citizens. A uniform level of trust in the government has been lacking across the country, and has plagued the national decision to return to normal. At least in New York, a return to normal is in sight, but it won't be exactly like it was. This current time will have a permanent effect on our future as a country and as an entire species. All things considered, these last few months have been a reminder that we as humans are not as invincible as we may sometimes think. We are at the mercy of the planet and whatever it may throw at us. We will soon become accustomed to our new normal, as with any other milestone in history, it will be a reaction to this time period to prevent something like this from ever happening again. This episode of Project Palladium was brought to you by Element Projects of Shamnan High School, located in Minneola, New York. Created and produced by Chow S. Liu. Produced and edited by Ronald Jabwin, written and performed by Jack Muscatello, performed and produced by Luke De Bono and Maximilian Leston. 
Original music by Jackson Dempsey. Our staff includes Thomas Breslin, J. Alex Garcia, and Andrew Galligan. Special thanks to Officer Evan DeBono, Carlota Lestone, Seth Reisner, and Ho Jing for sharing their stories with us. This episode would not be possible without Brother Thomas Cleary, Brother Joseph Lizzie, Brother Tom Terrell, and Peter Dubon. Thank you for listening.